0: The Desert Monks of Ancient Egypt, Part 2 Fundamental to the early desert monks was asceticism, which is a form of self-discipline that was prominent in Greco-Roman culture and it played a significant role in the lives of the Desert Fathers. Derived from the Greek word ascesis, meaning exercise or training, asceticism was initially conceived as a programme of bodily exercises to be used by athletes in preparation for athletic competitions that were so popular in the classical world. In the 3rd century BC, it was adapted and employed by Stoic philosophers who modified and applied the system of athletic exercises to the purpose of mental and spiritual development. To this end, the Stoics integrated psycho-spiritual processes such as meditation, fasting and other forms of self-denial for the purpose of separating the soul from the body and its negative influence. The philosophical disposition of the Stoics was not lost to primitive Christianity. However, the dualism of the Stoics, and for that matter those we now call Gnostics, was, from the beginning, alien to the Church. Thus the asceticism of the Desert Fathers, though similar in practice to that of the Stoics, was directed towards purification, not by separation, but through unification. The unification of the body, soul and spirit in Christ. For the solitary monk, this ascesis was a means of training the whole person in a spiritual discipline, central to which was overcoming the demands of the carnal appetites, and engaging in prayer, according to the instructions of St. Paul, who in his first letter to the Thessalonians, advocates that all who aspire to the spiritual life should pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5-17 Fulfilling this undertaking required the aspirant to relinquish all but the most essential of physical needs and to renounce all needs of the personality beyond that necessary for the spiritual life. It was to this end that the solitaries engaged in the life of an ascetic, As the name implies, solitaries generally live alone, shunning human company to concentrate their entire lives in engaging with the spiritual work, according to the imperative of St. Paul. Some of them lived in caves, whilst others built small stone shelters known as cells. Some, regardless of the climate, lived in the open throughout the year, a few even going naked. The majority, however, wore humble clothing, frequently wearing garments that even beggars would refuse to wear. As time passed and more formal communities were established, a recognisable dress code emerged, although the conditions of such clothing did not necessarily improve. Silence was another fundamental of the solitary life. Even in communities, it was common practice for the solitary to refrain from speaking to anyone and then to reply only when spoken to it is a discipline still adhered to in many monastic communities to this day. Inevitably, the monastic ideal of renunciation, consisting of an aesthetic life devoted to prayer and meditation, evolved over the course of time. But although it was driven by its own irrepressible energy, it was also shaped in different ways by the rapidly changing world in which it had taken root. What began as a migration of a few independent solitaries into the Egyptian desert very quickly became a mass movement of spiritually hungry people. Drawn by a shared spiritual ideal, these proto-monks gathered together to share in a common life, and great exemplars such as Anthony, Macarius and Pacomius came forward and took the lead in enabling these embryonic communities to establish social mechanisms that fulfilled their personal and communal objectives. Yet although the monks had renounced the secular world, the world was not so inclined to relinquish its hold on the monks. For although established far from centres of civilisation, the political and religious conflicts that raged around and within the Church during the 4th century reached deep into the monastic communities of the Egyptian deserts. At first, When their numbers were few, the political and doctrinal issues that troubled the church had little effect upon the desert monks. But, as their number grew, and as they began to organise themselves into communities and refine their teachings, what they believed and taught became a matter of significance to the politically minded authorities of the church. Consequently, there were many organisational and doctrinal issues that required clarification and agreement between the growing monastic houses and the church administration. A process that was not accomplished without pain or indeed bloodshed. Nevertheless, in spite of the conflict that plagued the church and monastery alike, the spiritual way of life of the monastic communities of the desert evolved a regular form, as did the rule by which they lived. The monastery, with its focus on a life of prayer, meditation and labour, proved to be a very successful communal system that delivered almost everything the spiritually minded could need. An unexpected bonus was the abundance of material goods produced from the combined labour of the monastery. This increase in material wealth brought with it both benefits and liabilities. The monasteries were able to flourish but at a cost. Managing the resources of an increasingly wealthy monastery required changes in administration and in the lifestyle of the monk, changes that were driven in part by the needs of the monastery and in part by the church hierarchy seeking to control the material resources as well as the intellectual and religious life of the monks. For a while, the monasteries were able to maintain a reasonably stable system of spiritual development that could adjust to these changes. However, it was not to last, and in due course what began as a renunciation of materialism and the forces of the material world succumbed to both. Its success became its downfall, a pattern that would be repeated down through the centuries even to the present day. A great deal of our understanding about the rules and practices of these various communities especially with regards to the communities of Nitrea and Skeet, have come down to us through the writings of contemporaries such as the anchorite Evagrius of Pontus, who died in 398. Evagrius spent the majority of his years among the cells of Skeet, engaging in the ascetic life. He was highly regarded in his day with a reputation for great wisdom and piety. He was also a fervent Oregonist, and a prodigious and acclaimed writer who fell foul of the church for his adherence to the teachings of Oregon. His writings were nevertheless used by John Cassian, who died in 445, as a basis for introducing Egyptian monasticism into Western Europe. Cassian had spent several years in a monastic community located near Bethlehem in Palestine before travelling to Egypt where he dwelt for several years among the desert monks, collecting and recording information about the ascetic life and rules of the Desert Fathers. In 415, Cassian established two monasteries near Marseille, one for men and one for women. He instituted a rule for both based upon his experience in Egypt and upon the writings of Evagrius. In the 6th century, St Benedict, drawing on the work of Cassian and through him upon Evagrius and the legacy of the Desert Fathers and their communities, established what was to be the most successful rule for a monastic community. In his rule, he classified four kinds of monk. The first kind he called Cenobites. These were spirituals who lived together in a community, following a common rule under the supervision and guidance of an abbot. The second he called anchorites or hermits who after appropriate training in the discipline of a community went forth to lead a life of a solitude. Both of these embraced a the life of renunciation accepting the vows of obedience, poverty and chastity. Accordingly, they met with Benedict's approval as following a fit and proper life for a monastic. However, he also listed two others that he did not approve of. The first he called Sarabites, a class of ascetic in the early church who lived either in their own homes or in small groups near the cities and acknowledged no monastic superior. Of these, Benedict stated that they had not been tried under any rule nor schooled by an experienced master. Because of this, there was real doubt in the church concerning them, and the term Sarabite has since become synonymous with the self-taught of whom it is said, the self-taught have inadequate teachers and even more inadequate students. The fear was that such people were in danger of becoming the ill-informed, missing form in the uninformed. The second he called jiravagi, or wandering monks. These he condemns as people who lived off the charity of others and whose religious life was but a pretense, following their own will, without the restraint of obedience. Benedict's condemnation was not harsh. On the contrary, he recognised that for good reasons, stability in the contemplative life of the monk, from the very beginning, had been based upon withdrawing from the world, and in his rule he enshrined that long-established commitment to renunciation by requiring the monk to reside within the monastery, dedicating every moment of the day to spiritual discipline. In doing so, he acknowledged the teachings of early exemplars of the monastic life, who maintained that above all things, the contempt of life was best served by removing all distractions from the field of experience. And because the external world was full of distractions, the cell, and subsequently the monastery, was the most effective way of eliminating them. It was with this in mind that Benedict condemned the Sarabites and the Jirovagi as such people were more likely than not to deviate from the work and fall into error. It was a common saying that a monk out of his cell was like a fish out of water. Both will perish. With Benedict, monasticism entered a new phase, a phase that focused as much, if not more, upon the spread of monastic communities in Europe rather than the East. As for the Desert Fathers themselves, it would be a mistake for the student to accept their sayings in the literal sense only. These sayings frequently carried different levels of meaning. Indeed allegory and metaphor were frequently employed in the Greco-Roman world. And given that Palladius and many of the desert monks were followers of Oregon, it should come as no surprise that many of the passages contained in their books and writings may also be understood in allegorical or metaphorical terms. One example is the use of the term fornication. Throughout the ages, this word has been commonly understood to signify inappropriate or unlawful sexual congress. It is a subject that is frequently referred to in the Paradise, but careful reading of such passages often reveals a deeper meaning, a meaning that alludes to the soul's obsession with the things of the senses, of which irrepressible sexual fantasies are but one expression. Many of these passages demonstrate that among the early desert monks the term fornication was applied to a wide range of carnal desires that could dominate the mind of solitary monks, thereby leading them away from the essential work of prayer and meditation. An obvious example of this is in passage numbered 123 in which Abba Epiphanius says whenever a thought fills your heart with vainglory or with pride, say thou unto thyself, Old man, behold thy fornication. These fornications or obsession had to be overcome if the solitary monk was ever to find the peace that surpasses all understanding, and consequently they were the subject of a great deal of reflection within these communities. When considered in such a way, many of the fabulous stories concerning the seemingly impossible events and supernatural experiences that befell these solitary monks were not simply tales of wonder and imagination. They also reveal a profound understanding of human psychology. However, to understand them, they need to be considered in context, and there is one context above all that needs to be recognized, which is that the central objective of the life and work of both the Anchorite and the Cenobite, was spiritualizing their life and their being. This they did by withdrawing from the world and from the domination of the senses, turning away from everything that biology and psychology of the terrestrial body, defined in scriptural terms as the first Adam, is programmed to facilitate. Paul describes the nature of the first Adam in his first letter to the Corinthians, Chapter 15, verses 39 to 54. It is a subject worthy of prolonged meditation. The most common reaction of the terrestrial body to this kind of discipline is to instinctively revert to its biological programming and psychological conditioning. This instinctive response manifests in many ways, but generally follows a recognisable pattern, a pattern that begins with the arousal of natural appetites, biology, accompanied by the stimulation of the imagination and the mind, psychology. Regardless of the form it took, it was the duty of the monk to overcome such impulses and to refocus on the spiritual work at hand. If the monk was successful in overcoming the instinctive nature of the terrestrial body, then the conflict far from being over could be externalised. This externalisation is described by the Desert Fathers and by spiritual aspirants from other traditions as afflictions imposed upon them by demons, seeking to deflect them from their spiritual objective by confronting them with a host of carnal temptations, or by trying to sow seeds of doubt to undermine their resolve. Thus a war ensues on a supernatural level between the monk and the demonic forces that may continue for many years. Yet even when the demonic adversaries are defeated, and peace reigns in the soul of the solitary monk, it is not the end of the matter. For just as the internal conflict between the soul and the need of the terrestrial body is externalised into a conflict with supernatural forces, so the conflict between the soul and demons may translate further into an external conflict with a physical being or creature who manifests in a physical form the demonic forces array against the monk. Many of the stories of the supernatural battles told by or about solitary monks conform to this pattern and only come to an end when either the solitary has overcome the instinctive nature of the terrestrial body or has surrendered to its demands. Now it should be mentioned here that whether the student is prepared to accept the reality of demonic entities or to think of them as being hallucinations induced by unnatural natural means, such as through fasting or sleep deprivation, is a matter of personal preference. But it should be understood that to the monks of the time the experiences were real, and as such they were defined and conveyed primarily in the form of short stories or sayings according to the conventions of the time, which included the use of allegory and metaphor, Thus far from being simple tales of superstitious primitives, many subtle meanings were embedded in their conveyance. And because of the wisdom they were understood to contain, these stories were used as educational tools being passed on from teacher to student, from one monastery to another, and from generation to generation. The problem for the unwary student lies in accepting their literal meaning only, and or imposing upon them modern theories that were never relevant in their time. Far from being quaint remnants of a bygone age, these sayings embody a spiritual wisdom that is as fresh and relevant today as it was some 1600 years ago. In sum, as a social experiment, monasticism has been clearly very successful, with perhaps the most outstanding reason for that success being the combination of dedicated people and a stable organisational structure. Even in the arid environments of the Egyptian wilderness, the well-organised monks were able to build and sustain extensive communities and further were able to generate surplus produce for distribution among the poor of the region. In some cases, the surplus was sent as far as Alexandria for distribution amongst the urban poor. Remarkably, this was only the beginning, for history demonstrates that the emergence of monasticism in the Egyptian deserts was a revolutionary movement that not only transformed the communal life of Egypt, but also much of the Roman world. Indeed, throughout the 4th and 5th centuries, the communal model of the monastery rapidly spread throughout an increasingly unstable Roman Empire. In due course, the focus of the world of monasticism shifted, inevitably, from the Near East to the world of Western Europe, where the New World Order was to emerge. Here, through the influence of Cassian, Martin of Tours and in due course Benedict, the inspiration of the desert monks slowly rooted itself, but with a different form and dynamic. However, that is another story. Thank you.